to episode three of No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. I'm your host, Hosea, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Moses. How you doing, Moses? What's up? Oh, just uh, trying to stay healthy as I watch the world end. Doing pretty good, though. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's burning down. Oh, yeah. It's basically what's happening right now. Uh, yeah, it's just ridiculous, man. We're, we're recording, uh, as was mentioned in last episode, in episode two, we're recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, and at this point, you know, we're pretty much staying inside and self-isolating. I'm speaking for myself, at least. Uh, I don't know about you. Are you are you doing the same? Oh, oh yes. Um, that's one of the beauties of of working in uh, IT field is I can work remotely. So it's kind of nice. It is. It's one of those luxuries. I think that those those that out there that don't have the luxury to be able to work from home, uh, we feel for you, and we hope that you can you know keep things going and uh, and that money's not too much of a worry and and so on. So. Uh, if you're listening to this and things are still pretty rough out there uh, because we're recording ahead of time, uh, we're recording ahead of our, our release date, uh, chin up, you know, let's try to lean on each other. Let's help each other get through these crazy times. You know, we hope that you're all happy, you're healthy, uh, both physically and mentally. Uh, so just remember that as we're going into this, we hope everybody's doing okay. And we're going to go ahead and get into some of the discussion for today. Also, uh, I just want to add... When you're out there, you're looking at all these things, the doom and gloom, all, all the things that are going on right now, just try to remember that we are all in this experience together. We're all humans. We're all going through this. And one thing as, as a human race that I've, I've noticed with the patterns throughout history is that this will pass and we'll be stronger for it. So just keep in there, keep hanging in there, and, uh, and this too shall pass. Yeah, couldn't have put it better myself. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get into uh, what's going to be part two of our Saints Chapter 1 discussion. So we covered in part one, which was episode two, this is going to get all over the place, sorry. Uh, but in episode two, we covered the ancestry of Joseph Smith. So we talked about some of the, you know, the characters of his family. Uh, we talked about, in particular, his family members on the Smith side that were involved in the Salem Witch Trials. We also talked about Solomon Mack, who was Lucy Mack Smith's father and the crazy stories that he had uh some of the misfortune that he was met with right moses oh my goodness absolutely that poor guy <laughs> and uh, i believe the phrase that you used was that the trees hate him so well it and and the thing is like i'm all for hugging trees but i think it would would have been wise for him to avoid trees altogether i think that after the first one you know after it falls on you you just kind of like Keep your distance. It's kind of like, you know, COVID-19 precautions, you know, personal space. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you missed any of that, go back, listen to episode two, our first part of chapter one uh, in the Saints book, and, and go and listen to some of these really cool stories that we brought out there. Uh, it, we ended up uh, at the end of the episode, we were talking about Joseph Smith Sr. And some of uh, we got a little bit into the folk magic and occult practice that was going on both in, at that time and in the Smith family. Uh, and we talked a little bit about divining, which is uh, always an interesting topic. So to be sure, we're going to keep talking a little bit about some of these topics as we move into some of the topics we're going to discuss today. Moses, do you want to tell us some of the topics that we're going to go through today? Well, today we're going to be going through the childhood years of, of Joseph Smith Jr. And uh, kind of the fi family dynamics that kind of helped shape him as he grew up, the things that he witnessed and, and the things that he went through. Uh, of course, as part of that growth and development, we're going to go over the famous leg operation. And then uh, we'll also uh, 
go through the Smith family move from uh, Sharon to Palmyra. So as always, uh, some of the sources that we're going to be using during this episode, uh, we're going to obviously keep using Saints. That's kind of that kind of goes without saying uh, Saints Volume One will be our benchmark. We're going to use Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. We're going to use D. Michael Quinn's Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. We also have Dan Vogel's Joseph Smith, The Making of a Prophet. We also have Von Brody's No Man Knows My History. And we also have uh, what I think is going to be a really interesting source for us to use as, as a supplement in this episode, which will be Dr. William D. Moraine, uh, his, his book, The Sword of Laban. Uh, this book in particular is a, an examination of Joseph Smith Jr.'s experience getting that surgery when he was uh, really young from the perspective of a uh, plastic surgeon, somebody who actually does restorative surgeries uh, in particular, I think for people who are burn victims, for children who are burn victims, but also uh, other, other kids that need reconstructive surgery, essentially. So he has a very interesting perspective to bring to the table, which we're going we're gonna to draw off of a little bit. Uh, in, in addition to that, any other additional sources that we will be referencing to, of course, will be linked in our show notes. If we miss anything, just let us know. But we work really hard to make sure that all of these things that we're saying and things that we're pointing to are always backed up by good sources, trusted sources. And we want to provide to you all of those tools. We want you to make your own conclusions about what we present here in our podcast. And as always, uh, come visit us at nomanknows.com. You can reach us, reach out to us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash nomadknows, or you could reach out to us on Twitter at nomadknowspod. Go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever your flavor is for subscribing to podcasts. Go there and subscribe and leave us a rating. We want to hear from you, the listener. As part of uh, this discussion, we would like our listeners to give us more direction on where you'd like to see this this go. And of course, we want to hear from you, the listener. Leave us a review. Let us know what we can improve on. You're going to be able to help control the narrative uh, and the things that we talk about. If you find something that's interesting, forward it to us. We're happy to hear from you. Good, bad, and ugly. I also want to announce, I guess in episode three, it's hard to say you're going to announce something. Everything's basically new, but we're going to have a new segment and it's going to be called Listener Q&A. Uh, or, or that name may change from time to time. We don't, I don't really know. Uh, it's it's not really that solid. So, but for right now, we're going to call it listener Q and a, uh, we want you to send us your questions about Mormon history. So you can send us those questions to no man knows my podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us at no man knows pod, or you can just go straight to Reddit. If you're already a user for Reddit and, and DM us on Reddit with our username, it's you slash no man knows my podcast. Any way you can get a hold of us, send us your questions. If you're going to send us an email, put in the subject title, listener Q&A or something like that so that we know what it is. Uh, but we want to address your questions. We want to see what, uh, you know, there's always, uh, it's always interesting to me, the different questions that people have when I'm talking to people about Mormon history. And a lot of times I, I, I get asked a question. And I'm like, you know, actually, I don't know about that. <laughs> But let me let me look it up and let me try to find out more about it. And that's what I love doing. That's what we love doing. So we want to hear those questions. We're going to hopefully try to keep it uh, close in chronology to our timeline. But we will accept any questions regarding Mormon history. Whatever you want to send us, we want to answer. And uh, look for that as a new segment once we start getting questions in. Obviously, that'll be after our launch date, after April 6th. Uh, and So we'll, we'll look for that at that point and uh, add that into the show. And now, on to the show.
right, so Saints obviously starts off with this really interesting, gripping story about Mount Tambora exploding out in Indonesia. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode, but because there's so much that precedes this in the Smith family, we wanted to make sure that we uh, handled it in the right chronology. There's a little bit of back and forth in the Saints book, but that's okay. I think that the way that the book is written, obviously, as we mentioned last time, is is an emphasis on narrative. And and to be fair, this is very gripping narrative, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. It, it kind of draws you in and uh, and it tells a colorful story. Uh, there's a lot of uh, good transitions. They're showing some background uh, of world happenings, things that are going on around the world. Also, just kind of what Joseph and, and the Smith family is going through at the at that time. Yeah, exactly. And now, <clears throat> the, I I, I want to kind of point your attention to something that I think may be the reason that they focus a lot on, on Mount Tambora, aside from the fact that, it, again, it is kind of a crazy story to have happen. We talked about it last episode. We said that it was sometimes referred to colloquially as the uh, 1800 and froze to death, which is, again, one of my favorite references to that time. As we kind of move into Saints a little bit, we start to find out that, so one of the phrases that's used in Saints is the phrase, that uh, Joseph Smith Sr. had some bad luck and unsuccessful investments. So I want to kind of drill down to that just a little bit, because it's true, and I think it's maybe just glossed over a little bit. So we want to kind of go into some of the things that happened early on in Joseph's formative years, really before anything happened with like the surgery or anything like that, but really kind of Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy in their time early on before they actually even moved to Sharon, Vermont. So in that, one of the interesting stories that we find in other histories, in particular, well, pretty much every other history uh, out there, is the ginseng debacle. So this is an event that happened uh, where Joseph Smith Sr., he, after working on his farm for five years, he had rented out his farm. He'd started to, you know, venture off as a merchant. Uh, so he sold a lot of different things initially. But what he did uh, after he was able to kind of establish a little bit of credit from the local banks, he was able to buy a lot of merchandise. So he opens up this mercantile in Randolph, Vermont. It's a pretty big town, actually. And so he goes out, he gets some credit from uh, Boston. And with that credit, he's able to stock a store. So he's got like a couple different things in there, but it's a pretty basic store. Then he learns from locals nearby this Basically what amounts to a get-rich-quick scheme. And what this, what this scheme is, is selling ginseng to China. Well, it's like, scheme is kind of an interesting word, but it was one of those things where it's like, you know, uh, you want to make money really quick. The price of ginseng has skyrocketed in China. Um, they were using it as a type of medicine, uh, along with a lot of other things. But ginseng was really, really popular, really prevalent in the... Uh, in that area in particular. It's still really popular, actually, in the Appalachian uh, area. And there's still a lot of people that farm ginseng, actually. Uh, it's used more nowadays. If you have, like, uh, a Monster energy drink, for example, we're not sponsored by Monster, by the way, just going to throw that in there. But if you have a Monster energy drink, that contains ginseng. Most energy drinks do. So it's still actually a really common route to have. Uh, but anyway, at this time... China's using it as a type of medicine. So he throws all of his money, he throws all of the credit that he's got, everything, into ginseng uh, because it's just a sure deal. And then he sends it on a ship to China. So he sends it on a ship to China after turning down an offer from a man named Stevens. I don't know if we have another name other than Stevens, but Stevens, uh, 
had offered him what what he rejected that offer for was because he he thought he could get uh, a multiple more than that uh, out in China. So he just said, you know what, actually, I'm just going to go ahead and sell this to China. Here's the thing, though. Stevens actually, through his son, intervened somehow. He was on the ship that the that the ginseng was on, and he ends up swindling Joseph Smith Sr. out of this, uh, really just the money, uh, because what he does is he goes and sells the ginseng, comes back and says, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, we couldn't get anything for it. Here's a, here's a chest of tea, which was worth, you know, a pittance at that point. But, you know, something. But, I mean, we're talking about just a huge amount of money that was lost in this thing. So now later on, uh, Stevens gets kind of found out and him and his son escape up to Canada. There's crazy stories that are going on, but I mean, I can't, it's unfathomable to me that you're writing a history, uh, it, about the Smith family. And now it's kind of focused on Joseph Smith Jr. About, um, you know, for most of saints at least, but this is a pretty interesting story. And I don't know. I, I the only thing I can think of is if you're not going to include it, it's because maybe it's embarrassing, but at the same time, you know, you have people who get swindled all the time. Really, this wasn't necessarily his fault. He was probably a little bit more gullible than he maybe should have been, but that's all just relative, I think. Don't you think? Well, absolutely. Um, I I kind of think that the reason why they didn't include this this particular information is uh, simply because it casts a bad light on uh, Smith Sr., and at this point, the church is really trying, I mean, historically, the church has really tried to polish up uh, the rough edges of, of Joseph Smith and, and Joseph Smith Jr. and Sr. And as part of that, they're, they really try to stay away from these less than stellar stories. But I, I think that if we're to accept that Joseph Smith Jr., even as a prophet, was a man and imperfect, we can also take that and apply it to Joseph Smith Sr. And I think people are a lot more accepting of, of human frailties than they may realize. You know, my thought always was the the more that these, these characters, because that's really what they end up being, the more these characters come to life and they seem like real people, the more believable it is, first of all. And second of all, I think it's more, it means more. It means more to me, at least. I don't want to think that I'm some guy that never falls prey to any of these, uh, you know, frailties, these human frailties, like getting swindled out of a get-rich-quick scheme. I mean, this happens to the best of us, really. But you take that away and you start to prop up this, uh, it, it's it's really just a form of leader worship or, I mean, um, come on, we call these people saints, for, for one. So it shouldn't be that surprising, I guess. But at the end of the day, you know, that makes me feel like I'm more of a failure or I'm, I'm less of a person than some of these people were. They had a lot of the same problems. They had a lot worse problems oftentimes. And that actually makes me feel better about my situation. Because if I'm a believing Mormon, for example, and I know that this happened with Smith Sr., maybe I feel a little bit better about myself if something bad happens to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I, in addition to that, I mean, just, just brushing over this by saying he just had some bad luck and unsuccessful investments, it really takes away the impact that this entire scheme had on the Smith family. It really takes away from the uh, human frailties and the imperfections that they experienced in their day, just as we do in ours. Right, exactly. I, th I think it's really a gross understatement to say that he just had some, some bad luck and some poor investments. I mean, the Smith family was really pretty destitute. You know, Lucy had been hounded by debt collectors uh, at the time that the senior 
ended up leaving to go find Palmyra, essentially. Uh, we'll get into that later on with the move, but just to be fair, like they, they, and that wasn't the only time that she had been preyed upon essentially by debt collectors. They, they were all over the Smith family all the time. Now the, the whole impact of this particular instance of the ginseng uh, issue was that with the short sale of the farm and Lucy's thousand dollar dowry that she got, they were now broke. They were able to use those things to kind of break even. Now they didn't really have a penny to their name. What just a terrible and, and destitute situation. Yeah, it's rough. But one of the things that they tended to do, according to Dan Vogel, is that they would actually hang around some of their family, both the Smith and the Mac family, for support. And I think we can relate to that. You know, sometimes things go bad. This is a newly married couple, essentially, um, really young. Some of their family were doing okay, and some were not. You know, in particular, Lucy had um, had a, a brother, Stephen, that was doing pretty well. And he's the one that ended up giving her that dowry, as we mentioned last time. But so, you know, whatever support they could get for their family, they were they were seeking uh, during this time. So just an interesting thing to me to think, you know, they they are just like any of us. They went through a really hard time. They didn't have a, a perfect go at it, just like nobody does. In fact, they probably made some mistakes, I would say, at least Joseph Sr. did with some of the choices that he made. Uh, and, you know, farming was hard. It was a really rough time in that area uh, they, they'd been sold land that really wasn't good land and hard to farm on but at the end of the day you know you got to make things work and i think that you'll see a pattern in the smith family that pretty much all the time when things are going bad well things are going bad things are going good doesn't really matter they're always just trying to make it work they're trying to put things together another thing that i think is missing from the saints book narrative is that we don't really see any of the occult ties to the Smith family that we do in in the real historical record. And again, I'm going to use the term occult and folk magic pretty much interchangeably. But basically, what we're talking about we're talking about treasure digging, we're talking about seer stones, we're talking about divination, uh, which we went into a little bit last time. Water divining was one of the things we talked about last time. You know, basically occult practices that were happening at the time. I don't see any mention, and I could have missed it. I didn't see any mention in the Saints book about any of that. Is that something that you found as well? Uh, yeah, it was strangely and glaringly absent. Right. I think that the best source that we have for a lot of the occult practice that was going on is, I mean, it's in the name, obviously, but is D. Michael Quinn's early Mormonism and the magic worldview. In that book, he goes into incredible detail, both on the more ancient history of occult practice and, and folk magic how it kind of made its way from Europe over to America, early America uh, in the colonies, how it was practiced throughout the intervening, you know, 200 years before we get into the Second Great Awakening period, which we're about to get into. And we see how it's developed in the Smith family and both both sides of the Smith family of the Smiths and the Max. We, we learn, in, in particular, the Smiths are pretty partial to it. You know, we, obviously, we learned that Joseph Smith Sr. was one of the leading rodsmen of the, the Woods group of Nathaniel Wood. And Oliver Cowdery's father, William Cowdery, were these, you know, quote unquote, rodsmen, uh, these people that would use a witch hazel rod or some other device, essentially, to try to find water, but also treasure. I mean, they were really into treasure seeking, so something to be aware of. But we don't see any of that in Saints. And again, if I'm missing something, somebody should let me know, but I don't remember any mention of it at all. And I think that there's a good reason for that. I think that the, there's still, to this day, a desire from the official church narrative 
to try to cut out anything that seems kind of weird. You know, I grew up, I don't know about you, Moses, but I grew up in a time where, I mean, face cards, for example, were considered of the devil. I mean, of the devil might be strong, but, you know, face cards were basically not allowed for the most part. We had these different things that would come up that were like anything to do with this, you know, occult kind of stuff going on is completely and, and utterly outlawed. It's not, it's something that we couldn't do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in addition to that, and, and when you're talking about face cards, I think one of the biggest drivers for that was uh, Bruce Star McConkie's Mormon Doctrine. Uh, he talked about how face cards are tools of the devil. They get you, they get you addicted to gambling and then you become a sexaholic at that point too. So well, it all ties together. That's nice. Basically, it, it all ties together so easy. And then, uh, of course, it leads to... And you homo- probably become gay, right? Yeah, I was going to say. And then it just leads to homosexuality. Yeah, uh, you know, that's right. Uh, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, though, I mean, like, it, there there was this... I mean, no, I, I think that it's important to say that there was always always this kind of uh, homophobia that was going on. Oh, yeah. It seemed like everything led to you being gay. But anyway, no, I get what you're saying. Like, it's one of those... I always thought it had to do with some of the uh, the folk magic roots of face cards, like almost tarot cards, for example. But you, you're probably right. I, I, it's not something I really looked into recently. Well, and I think I think well, and it's, we're we're told not to go to psych, get our psychic readings done, or you know, to, to work with a medium who could see the dead, because now you're or horoscopes, right? Yeah, exactly. Like don't 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 deal with that at all. But you can you can look through the early Mormon history and using these divination rods and using these seer stones and using these different tools to kind of find a treasure or to make sense of, of something to divine something, you know, look into the future. You can draw a lot of parallels from that supernatural worldview to how even in recent history or in our recent times and more current times, we tie a lot of supernatural powers to our abilities. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I just think it's interesting because it's, you know, to be fair, it's part of our heritage, really. When you look at it, you think, you know, there's this, uh, there's this history, this tradition, tradition, essentially, of this folk magic being passed down from father to son, really. I think that once the church gets established, we see it really kind of go away to some extent, but it's stuck around for a while, you know? And so I think that for some people, it might be something that is valued. I know that, for example, Richard Bushman in Rough Stone Rolling, he talks a lot about how the use of a peep stone, the use of a, a seer stone, there's a lot of different names for it, how the use of a peep stone was essentially the way that Joseph Smith became aware of his connection to God. And I know for a fact that uh, Mike Quinn and, and Richard Bushman are actually, I don't know about believers, but they, they value that part of the history. It seems kind of odd that you would cut that out of the history entirely, is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so yeah, we don't see really any of this folk magic happening, uh, although it was a huge part of the family. And we're, we're going to obviously see a lot of that as we go through our, our timeline here. But uh, Mike Quinn happens to mention that magic and treasure digging were just a major part of the Smiths' uh, family. Their their religious quest is what he calls it. Um, so this is not a small thing. This is not a one-time occurrence. We're going to see a lot of it. And I think it's time to get comfortable with the fact that this is, this is a huge part of the story here. 
and it's a huge part of the whole advent of the Mormon church. Uh, pretty much everything leads back to this and can be explained by understanding what's going on with this stuff. So yeah, I, another thing that we maybe don't see a whole lot, so in the Saints book is explored a little bit, some of the friction between Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy over religion. What it may not say so much of is the fact that and we, the most of what we know about this period, at least from the Saints book especially, is from what um, Lucy Mack Smith wrote in her autobiography. In the, in the first version of her autobiography, by the way, because there was another version, it's a story we won't go into, but there's two versions, one when it was first published and another one that was actually revised, uh, edited heavily, and then, and then distributed by the church. The one that you got from, you know, say Deseret Book, for example, is probably not the one that was... The, the one it's not the one that was in her own words for example if you want to get that one you're going to have to look for a uh yeah if you want that you're going to have to look for the 1853 edition uh, which you can find in different places but anyway so what we find in, in lucy max smith's autobiography is the fact that there seemed to be a lot of friction all the time it wasn't just religion and it's really kind of interesting i want to kind of talk about this for a second so lucy seems to in her autobiography everything is, is always a major problem that she swoops in and, and saves uh, she saves the day in pretty much everything. Uh, she saves the day when it comes to handling the debtors when, when they're leaving uh, Sharon, Vermont. That was a major problem. She's, uh, you know, Saints focuses heavily on their trip from Sharon, Vermont to Palmyra. You know, she had to deal with Mr. Howard on their on their trip from Sharon, Vermont to Palmyra. So there's a lot in that book and in, in the autobiography that she wrote about how there was this major issue. You have these traditional, you know, not that it's really something I want to advocate, but there was this really prevalent worldview at that time that the man of the house, the father figure, would be the one to make all these decisions that were happening. Uh, the final say was always them, that they would be the ones that were strong and and protecting and all these different things. But what we see in, in Lucy Mack Smith's autobiography is she kind of flipped the script and and in her autobiography, she's the one that makes the decisions uh, when Joseph Smith Sr. seems to lack the ability to make decisions. She's the one that's able to bring the family together when it seems like all is lost and everybody's down and depressed. She's the one that says, I'm going to come through and I'm going to make this work for us. We're going to open up this shop. You know, we're going to sell cakes and beer. We're going to, you know, talk about the latest root beer, not actual beer, but that doesn't really matter. Anyway, so <laughs> I does. She was really into temperance. But anyway, you know, so she's she's got this really high opinion of herself in her book, which I don't think there's anybody that could write an autobiography that doesn't have that kind of tone. So I'm not in any way trying to say that that's a bad thing. It's, we have to take a lot of what she says with a grain of salt, because what's written in her autobiography is is in her own view of how things happened. And we know for a fact some of the things that she says are just unreliable. But it's a, I guess it's a good window into her mind of, of how she dealt with the situation a few years after the fact. Well, and in addition to that, when we're talking about, from Lucy's perspective, what kinds of things were going on and her making those decisions and being the uh, leader of the family, I actually don't have a tough time imagining that because with some of the descriptions of Smith Sr., he didn't take life too seriously, it seems like. And where Lucy had more of an even head, she thought things through. Smith would probably talk about this in a little bit here, but talk about his drinking and his propensity for latching onto these get-rich-quick schemes. So I I don't have a tough time seeing Lucy as being really the, the one in charge of the family and in charge of those decisions. 
Oh, no. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that there's plenty of evidence out there to show that she was a strong woman, maybe even ahead of her time. I don't really think it's, I'm going to go ahead and just cut maybe out of that. It was ahead of her time. She was an impressive, impressive lady and went through a lot, to be fair. Um, so, again, I, I don't think uh, any in any way disparaging her. Um, that's not what I'm trying to do at all. And I, I don't think that's what you're saying either. Um, I just want to say, yes, I, I completely agree that she's probably the, the one that led this family more so than uh, Smith Sr. did, mainly because she felt like she had to. So, yeah. I, so one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is that they don't really mention a lot of that that's going on. And that's obviously huge. When we talk about family dynamics in the Smith home, that's a big dynamic that we have to address. We have to address this friction that's going on between between Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy over not just religion, but a lot of other issues and maybe some resentment that's getting built up for things that didn't go well, you know, and I, some of that is just, it's just a a hypothesis. But what we know of how family dynamics work in virtually every family on earth, we know that there's going to be some tension there. So, and, and just to underscore the fact that the tension over religion is enough on its own to be a big issue and to make kids in the family extremely concerned about the outcome of what's going to happen between them. You know, when you have two different people who are arguing over what happens after you die, I mean, you don't have to be a young child to understand that that's a huge problem. Well, and and to add to that, when you have something as integral into your life, such as religion, having parents disagree on those, you have a split front, a divided divided leadership, and it, there is just a lot of friction because how, how do you raise your kids at that point? We see that nowadays too with split religion parents. You know, you have a Methodist and a Catholic. Well, those are two different, uh, two different viewpoints. How, how do you want to raise your kids? And depending on how strongly you feel about your religion, that could really tear a family apart. Right. I think that that's a huge key point that you just made though, is it, it's how much how much do you emphasize these differences versus emphasizing the things that you both believe in? So, yeah, you have problems when you have, especially when kids come around. I mean, you don't have to have kids to have uh, issues in a relationship between differing uh, views of religion, right? Even the Bible talks about being uh, unequally yoked. And I think that that's true. However, I think that that's something that you can overcome. You just have to have a very open mind about what it means to believe one thing and believe another thing. And you also have to be, like you said, on the same page, especially if you have kids, you have to be on the same page about what you're telling your kids and making sure that they're not seeing this fight that's happening all the time and it's just really stressful for them. And I think that that's what we're going to see with Joseph, who's just a really young child, while not just his parents, but really everybody around him. We're going crazy over some of these religious differences, absolutely insane over them. And, you know, with Smith Sr., you have somebody who essentially didn't belong to a church. That's actually something that the Saints book says. I will say this, though. They did miss the fact that he actually helped to start a universalist church with his brother Jesse and his father Asil. That is an interesting story. I don't think he actually really participated much in the actual religious part of it because, you know, universalists tended to believe more in universal salvation and that you didn't really, there's nothing that you could do to ensure your salvation. There's a lot of people that believe this still today. Um, A lot of evangelical Christians still believe this today. That Listen, there's nothing that you can do. The atonement of Jesus Christ was enough to save you and everybody. And this idea that you're going to, you know, I'll just use Catholics as an example, but, you know, Mormons are a great example of it too. But this Catholic idea of a tally of like good things versus bad things, 
you know, will will determine where you go. That's just, uh, in fact, I think it's almost insulting to some of those people who have that universal salvation belief. You know, you have that with Senior, and then you have Lucy, who's kind of all over the place. She settled on Protestantism for a little while, and that was kind of the main thing that she did. But I mean, there was a big difference there. There was a really big difference in those two thoughts. Well, and to somebody like uh, Smith Sr., universalism is probably a pretty appealing viewpoint. And that way you can drink your alcohol and, and not take life too seriously because you have no control over it. So why try? Right. And to say that, man, it, it was rough times. I don't envy these people because it just seemed like life was hard in general. We went over Solomon Mack's experience, obviously. That's probably not everybody's, but I'm telling you, man, it was, a, it was a rough time. And so to think that, you know, I don't have to do all this extra stuff to be saved, that's an appealing thought, I would say. But I'd also say that there's enough evidence to believe that in the Bible. Uh, there's enough evidence to believe that in a lot of different things. And I don't think that I want to kind of move a little bit away because I think some people may think that I'm trying to say this. I want to move a little bit away from trying to say that it's an appealing thing for people to believe so it's easy and that's what they choose to believe because they want life to be easier. I don't think that's true at all either. But I, I would say that it's something that if you're if you're already, you know, believing in that kind of idea that, you know, there's nothing that you can do to change your outcome as far as salvation is concerned. It's a bit of a relief off your shoulders, essentially. Well, yeah. And that's not to say that that he helped start that church with his brother and father because he wanted to be able to do those things freely. I do believe that that people seek out religion and seek out religion that fits their lifestyle. Right. No, exactly. So and we and we kind of just talked about this a little bit, but let's go ahead and just explore this a little bit more. And this will be a theme probably going forward. But what we have to understand as well is that we have plenty of reports from people about what's what Smith Sr. was like, what his character was like. You know, Dan Vogel says that Smith Sr. had reportedly had a sad demeanor and he he drank alcohol excessively. We're not talking about just a few times here. We're talking about he had an alcohol problem. And that's not something that other people only said about him. That's something that he said about himself. There was a blessing that he gave to Hiram and he gave to Joseph. And he specifically mentions that his, you know, you've been really good to your father. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. You've been really good to your father, who at times has been out of the way with wine. Meaning he, you know, unable to perform the duties of a father because he was essentially, he was drunk. Uh, again, this is not something we're trying to point at him and say he's such a bad person for doing this. People struggle with alcoholism all the time, but trying to trying to move away from that, trying to hide it, trying to cut it out of the history, is not helpful to anybody. I don't think. I think it's helpful for us to understand that he did have this problem. It's something he struggled with pretty much his whole life, and so we we will have the references in the show notes. But please understand, Joseph Smith Senior did have a drinking problem. He also, as uh, as you said, Moses, he also had a really interesting tendency to, to latch on to get rich quick schemes. Um, the ginseng trade that went bad is one example of that, but he had others that, that went to as well. And Brody uh, speaks of that as well. Okay. So now we're going to start talking about the leg operation that Joseph Smith Jr. went through as a seven-year-old. And this is an interesting story that gets told in some histories of the church. It's either glossed over or it's used to relay basically one specific moral. And like, I mean, you could tell me, like, what, what moral am I talking about? 
Oh, are you talking about uh, Joseph Smith not partaking of alcohol? Yeah, I mean, to me, that was the whole story, basically, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I, I mean, I just, I, I'm, I'm probably, I could be alone or we could be alone in this by thinking basically all growing up uh when i heard the story of joseph smith's leg getting operated on uh it was it was to point out the fact that he never drank alcohol and i don't i don't know if anybody ever said that he never drank alcohol ever but i mean that's kind of the implication right that he was even as a seven-year-old yeah that's implied that um even with this excruciating surgery he didn't let alcohol pass his lips but they don't really talk about his later uses of alcohol. And I heard it argued also that he looked at his dad. We already talked about this. His his dad, uh, Smith Sr., being an alcoholic, you know, uh, having an issue with that. So one of the theories that I've heard passing around, which totally makes sense, is that he looked at that and said, I don't want to make mom upset because when dad drinks, she gets upset. So there's that that theory, too. So. Yeah, and that's actually going to be explored a little bit more. I mean, the sources are a little bit thin about what happened exactly during the surgery or or the events surrounding the surgery. But, you know, we have a lot of other supporting documentation that can help us kind of zero in on some things that were going on. We have to understand that the majority of the narrative, like we said before, is being supplied by Lucy Max Smith in her autobiography. So there's a lot to it that we can say the events probably played out the way that she's saying they played out, or at least you know, the skeletal structure of what she's trying to tell us. But some of the details may be a little bit embellished. Um, And and again, I'm saying that fully acknowledging the fact that if I were to write an autobiography, I would probably write it making myself look as good as possible. And I think that's a natural human tendency. So just to be clear, Saints uses that experience exclusively. They use Lucy Max Smith's autobiography exclusively to tell the story, essentially. And we have some interesting insights to, to dive into, so I'm excited. So let's start with the fact that this is kind of a fun little nugget that I pulled out of here. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, Moses, but uh, they actually mentioned Sophronia for the first time in Saints in in this part right here where they talk about Sophronia actually contracted typhoid uh, at first. So let's just kind of to give a little bit of background, typhoid was going around typhoid fever, uh, which is a very serious fever. You know, this is going to have a lot of parallels to what's going on right now. So we, we have this infectious disease that people are having a really hard time protecting themselves against. And once one person in the household gets it, basically the rest of the household gets it as well. You know, you have caretakers, you have people who are taking care of the ones that are sick, and then they get it. And then, you know, we're going to see that that has impacts, not just with the immediate need for health care for that individual, but for young, young, uh, for young children, that can have a really huge impact psychologically. And that's something that we're going to look at, too. So basically, what I wanted to say was the Sophronia is actually mentioned here. I, and I want to just kind of like applaud the fact that they mentioned Sophronia here because I've really been unable to find another instance of Sophronia. Or, OK, so let me just stop for a second and ask you this. <laughs> not not you, not to put you on the spot, Moses, but I want our listeners to just sit back for one second and really think to yourselves. Do I know the names of Joseph Smith's sisters? Oh man, you are putting me on the spot. Uh, I don't. So and I just said one. So okay. So there's Sophronia. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm not actually. I don't need you to answer. But I want everybody to think about that because this. Let's call it. This is a rhetorical question because <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want to embarrass ourselves a little bit. But I was embarrassed because I'm like, you know what? 
I know, you know, I can name off most of the, of the, of the males. You, you know, you have Alvin, you have uh, Hiram, Joseph, you have Samuel, you have William, and you have Don Carlos. And I believe I just hit all of them. I think so. I think that's all of them. But I'm at a loss most of the time when I think about who the, who the sisters are. And we're not talking about sisters that, you know, siblings that would have been born and then died immediately or something like that. These women lived way longer than most of the men. I mean, uh, Catherine died in 1900. And granted, she was one of the younger children. But we know about Don Carlos is in some of the history as well. You know, one of the craziest things is that while I was thinking about this, I went back and looked through the CES manual that I have. So the Church History and the Fullness of Times. Uh, I think I said it was a 90s version back in the last episode. Again, not much has really changed in that whole thing. And I looked through the whole thing. There is no mention of who the sisters are, but multiple mentions of every other male in the family. Oh, yeah. So it's just weird to me. Well, and, and it just makes me it makes me wonder. Like when you when you look at the Book of Mormon, you look at Doctrine and Covenants, uh, you look at these modern day scriptures, and then you look at how the church portrays the history. They don't revere women very much. But like in the Old Testament, you have a, a few solid cases where they revered women, you know, Old Testament, New Testament. Like you hear about Mary. Yeah, exactly. You hear about, I mean, you know, Jesus's mother's name and you know about Mary Magdalene and you know about. Yeah, I mean, no, you're absolutely uh, right. What about Isaac and Rebecca? You know, you look at 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 all of these uh, prophets from the Old Testament. You know their wives' names. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going back to the Pentateuch, you know, you have Abraham and Sarai. You know, I think it's just indicative of the the patriarchy, and I hate using that term because it's such a uh, it's a real buzzword. But at the end of the day. You know, it, it is it is indicative of male dominance in a society. And in particular, I mean, I wonder if we were to look and this is not something that I have any expertise in. So I this is just a thought experiment for me. But I wonder if we were to look and see the difference in male dominated society from, you know, let's say the Jesus's time. Right. Mm-hmm. The time that we're mentioning right now and also the society of which that is in, uh, you know, you're going to find maybe that they had traditions that that were more egalitarian than you would have had in the early 19th century or even the late 18th century. My guess is that that would be the case, but I, I don't really know. I don't know for sure. You know, women were certainly subservient and relegated to a lower status for a lot of the early history of America, especially. We have a few people who shine through that. I mean, look at Lucy. I mean, you have her daughters are never mentioned, basically, but she's she's basically the whole story. So that's something, right? You have Emma, who we've tried to write out of history, or at least Brigham Young did. So, again, I want to just kind of, you know, I feel like it's important to point out that Sophronia is mentioned in Saints. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge step forward. And she's actually mentioned twice. Hey, and that's better than zero. Yeah. You know, it's a 2x increase. Well, and there's there's even uh, Catherine who's mentioned in that same paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, so Catherine is a student. So no, but if you're listening at home and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that I never thought of the sisters of Joseph Smith, you're not alone. Like, I think we all basically let that one just fall through the cracks, basically. So I I don't know. Something to pay attention to, I think, 
But anyway. Well, and quite frankly, I, I think this actually plays quite a bit into the background that Joseph came from. Because I look at Joseph and I think he was actually a little more progressive. Sure. Yeah. For his time as well. Um, Maybe too progressive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so as Lucy Mac Smith is, his mother is, is the strong woman that's leading the family that is, you know, really trying to take the reins on the family and steer it in a good direction. And Emma was nobody to be trifled with. You know, she was a very strong woman. As a matter of fact, that was probably the biggest reason why she and Brigham Young didn't get along. Because Brigham viewed women as subservient to men. And she was, I think Joseph considered her his equal. Yeah, I agree. And at times, perhaps a rival even. But I will say, uh, for, for those of you who just heard that Brigham Young made women subservient to him and believed that that was the case and you're thinking did he there's there's a lot to say about that and because it's so far away in our timeline it's not something we're probably going to reference to right now but just i mean go look it up there's so many i i mean and actually i might i might even recommend against looking up everything that brigham young said because there's a lot there and uh it, it's not pleasant to read i read one to my wife uh, uh, uh just a, a excerpt from uh his journal a little bit ago i think it was yesterday and it made me kind of sick reading it and it also made you know my wife she's and, and she's not one to ever think anything ill of any of the prophets uh but that was a tough one you know what i mean so again i know there's gonna be people out there listening that think we're just making these uh, accusations. I think some people would say I certainly would have at some point. And uh, I think that you maybe need to look that up a little bit and, you know, don't, don't just go with that. I don't trust the source kind of response. Go look in the journal discourses. You're going to find plenty in there to back up what we're saying, but yeah. Yeah. Lots of jewels that you'll find if you do a little bit of research. Yeah. And this is, this is the thing, like we, we will make accusations but we will have the data to back up what we're what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like we're not going to go off the handle and make a crap or even go by sources that, that aren't verified. Yeah. We're going to look, we're going to make these accusations from time to time and give us enough time. We'll get to that point where we're actually going to present to you the evidence that exists that's been verified by historians that corroborate what we're, what we're claiming here. Right. It's not in question whatsoever. Uh, and, and again, I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm, uh, that turns from an accusation and I'm only saying accusation because I think that's how I would have felt at a certain point that somebody would say something about Joseph Smith or Brigham Young that I thought was offensive. And I'm thinking that's an accusation. It's unfounded, you know, whatever you're, you're not alone. I, 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 I feel you, but at the end of the day, understand that what, we're not making accusations here. We're actually, we're actually telling you what the record shows. And I don't think that we're being hyperbolic in the slightest with anything that we're saying here. I mean, uh, Moses and I actually had a little discussion uh, before about a, a particular topic that I do think is is not fully supported. But I we talked about how I really kind of like it. I think it's a I think it makes a lot of sense. But I don't think it's quite to the point yet where I can support it as a as an underlying theory. And I say theory in the sense that it's it's basically the uh, historical community's consensus on what actually happened. So, I, and I, again, I'm, I'm saying that just to say that, you know, we do in, entertain things from time to time that we think are just either fun or, well, that's an interesting source. 
but we're only sharing with you guys on here the things that we are really solid on. Uh, and and that, not just us, because again, we're looking to the historians here to say, what's the consensus? Now, we're looking to the literature to say, what's everybody coming together on here? And, you know, so sorry to go off on a tangent there, but that was really important. I appreciate you bringing that up, Moses. Oh, absolutely. I, and it's, it's just important to remember, don't take everything we say as factual and don't take it as us just letting loose and throwing a bunch of accusations out there either. Just take everything we say with a grain of salt and we'll get to the evidence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, again, let me go back and just... Uh, Applaud one more time. Saints, fantastic job. You've included Sophronia, you've included Catherine, and I'm glad that they're finally making their way into official Mormon history. You did leave out Lucy, but hey, two out of three is pretty good. So we have a typhoid outbreak in the Smith home. Sophronia catches it not too long after. You have Alvin catching it, and then pretty soon Joseph catches it as well. Okay, and and going forward, uh, a lot of what we're going to reference is going to be both Lucy Max Smith's autobiography, because again, that's where we get main, the uh, main story from. But I'm also going to be using a lot of Dr. Moraine's The Sword of Laban, which is a fantastic read. I've been really enjoying it so far. Um, he has a lot of insight as a surgeon to understand what's going on with Joseph Smith's surgery. Um, if this wasn't mentioned before, I want to I make sure we mention it now. Dr. Moraine is, an in, uh, is, a, is a reconstructive surgeon who is... A, a, who, who, sorry, who is a surgeon at Dartmouth uh, Medical School, which we'll see how that plays into this story, actually. Um, but the founder of Dartmouth, a guy named Nathan Smith, uh, funnily enough, no relation to the Smith family. A lot of Smiths going around, I guess. Nathan Smith founded Dartmouth College uh, and was the, was the main attending physician that operated on Joseph Smith's leg. He had other medical students with him. But he was the main surgeon for that, and so he's actually left a legacy of several different, uh, several different medical schools. So we have uh, we have a lot of information that's coming from Dr. Moraine in his book, The Sword of Laban, uh, that we're going to be referencing because he has a very, you know very special insight into how this all went down, including some of the records of Nathan Smith, uh, the one that that uh, performed the surgery on Joseph in the first place. So basically. Um, to get into the story here, you have this typhoid fever going around. Joseph catches it, and he seems to be the only of the uh, the only one of the Smith children that has a complication from it. So after about two weeks of dealing with this fever, he ends up developing an, an abscess in his lymph nodes of his left armpit. So they call in a physician. You know, physician was kind of a loose term around this time, and especially in the Smith home, because as we've mentioned before, and as we're going to continue to mention, the Smith family, and this is Lucy included, they all had very interesting ideas about medicine as, as much as they did about folk magic. And a lot of those things interplayed. So Lucy had a huge amount of different natural, like root medicines, you know, she had a lot of natural, what she thought were healing medicines. And like naturopathic. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so she really relied on a lot of that in addition to some of the ritualistic magic that they would perform. You know, it's almost like we're going to find out that there's a lot of parallel there between the priesthood blessings that we give and, and some of that early stuff, because you have a ritualistic procedure that you follow to invoke a supernatural power. I'm just using very broad language here, but you're also administering an oil to somebody's head, which has more meaning than I think we understand because you're anointing that person and then you're doing an invocation, essentially. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through this because 
there are all of these little connections here and there that we can make back and forth. But to say that, you know, they called the family physician, I mean, that's kind of being generous, I think. Uh, the, the guy that ended up showing up, we know at least one of the physicians um, was a guy by the name of Dr. Parkhurst. And Dr. Parkhurst, I think, could barely be called a physician. So, but that's not the individual who showed up for this one. Uh, they basically misdiagnosed this, the, uh, the abscess under Joseph Smith's armpit as a spring. So basically all they did was to apply what they called the hot shovel, which is basically a warm compress. Uh, you know, what you would treat a sprain for. Heat, you know, ice wasn't really a thing, so heat. So obviously that didn't really do the trick because they weren't treating a sprain, they were treating an abscess. After things didn't really get much better, they had to come back and they ended up lancing the abscess, which had grown in the intervening two more weeks. So, I mean, we see this progressing like two weeks of the fever starts to develop a sore under his armpit. They misdiagnose it. They mistreat it. Two more weeks. We're now a month into this ordeal. And he's finally getting treated for the abscess that developed. Now, they drain the abscess. And this is a little bit gross out there. So those of you, maybe this is a, a warning for those of you that have a, a hard time, maybe a little bit squeamish, but uh, so they lanced it uh, and it says they plunged into the swollen skin to release fully a quart of pus. Oh so, man. It's pretty gross. That is insane. I'm pretty sure there's YouTube videos for this kind of thing. So yeah, it's Dr. Pimple Popper, um, except much worse. Oh, much worse. That is disgusting. It's because it's kind of life-threatening. Yeah. Really, when you think about it. So he gets this uh, he gets this abscess lanced, which is the right thing to do. And he's actually feeling a lot better. I mean, this is something that you can see pretty much immediate improvement from. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's actually uh, a pretty good result. But we'll, we find out later that um, the interesting thing with with uh, the the official name for it is Salmonella typhi. That's the that's the type of bacteria that's being uh, that's infecting people when you have typhoid fever. At this point, it is already just moving through his whole system. Right, the blood is actually carrying it around in the system, and unfortunately, it settles in his uh, in the upper portion of his left tibia. So that's your shin bone, right? So it's, it's the left tibia, his left shin bone, essentially, and it's it's actually to give you a little bit more information. It's actually settling in the marrow of that bone. Just think about that for a second, because that is seriously painful. Now, remind me, I I think that there are innervations throughout the bone. So you can imagine that that it's probably pretty painful with it triggering all the nerves that are surrounded by this hard bone that aren't used to having any kind of stimuli. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, read a little excerpt from Dr. Moraine's book because he actually explains that really well. So he says, as the natural history of this condition called osteomyelitis, so we know that that's a condition that still exists to date. It's the the causation is a little different, but it still uh, exists in people today. The abscess expanded to involve the layer of tissue just beneath the periosteum. Uh, The nourishing membrane, that's what you're talking about, Moses, the nourishing membrane and sheathing the bone. This nerve-rich sheath was expanded by the growing pocket of pus that was developing, and this expansion caused pain greater than he had ever experienced. This is the interesting part I was going to bring up, actually, because this is really important to note, too. Dr. Moraine says, indeed, it is widely reported that periosteal pain is more severe than that of any other tissue. So we have, you know, a really seriously painful problem going on. We also have another problem where, you know, this, this is going left untreated. After, after the initial abscess is lanced and before things settle into the, into the tibia, into his, his left shin bone, there was a full extra, another two-week period. 
that he suffered through this pain. A seven-year-old boy. Jeez, that poor kid. So what Dr. Moraine is going to bring up in time is not just how painful this operation was and how involved it was, uh, how uh, innovative it was at the time. He's also going to bring in the fact that a seven-year-old child going through such a traumatic experience is scarred for life, no matter what. It happens in every case that there is something so traumatic to a young child. And this is a man that's seen it firsthand and has written articles about it. He's written in medical journals about how children that he's treated have been affected psychologically. So that's something to take into consideration here. One thing I'd like to to ask, uh, just for a little clarification, um, when Maureen's talking about psychological effects on children who have gone through these traumatic experiences, is it basically a lifelong PTSD? Yeah, I mean, it, that's exactly what it is. It's uh, anybody that goes through something traumatic. And, and in this particular instance, we're talking about physical trauma. We're talking about pain. Unlike anybody's really experienced, we're talking about when he's talking about osteomyelitis pain, the, the pain that he's having in the shin being the some of the worst pain that a person can experience, if not the worst. At seven years old, I mean, I, I know that I keep saying this over and over again, but yeah, this is this is going to affect anybody uh, in a major, major way. And what Dr. Moraine brings in throughout the rest of the book, and we're going to see this, is some insights into various behaviors, into some of the speech of Joseph Smith, for example, some of his writings, or some of his dictations, I should say, how a lot of this stuff actually plays into it, because there's a lot going on here. So I actually want to dig into that just a little bit, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, because it's very interesting. I want, to, I want to highlight a couple things that are going on in this procedure, and this is why we kind of built this up, because... I think this is going to really play into a lot of the later timeline, uh, really the rest of his life. So anyway, just keep that in mind. Um, something that Dan Vogel mentions is he actually mentions that the story that Lucy Max Smith tells about the operation where Joseph Smith uh, Jr., seven-year-old, remember, is on the table. He's being asked to take the brandy, if not brandy wine. He's saying, don't strap me down. I don't need any alcohol, just my dad. And then, you know, the, the big thing is that after the surgery starts, she's off, she says, several hundred yards away and it still hears him scream, comes running back in. And, and I can see the, the video in my head. I'm not exactly sure which video it's from, because again, I just watched Joseph Smith, the Prophet of the Restoration again, and I didn't see it in that video, but maybe I didn't get far enough into it. But anyway, so I, I'm, I'm just recalling some kind of maybe... CES video or some video that the church made where this happened. So, so anyway, so this whole story that she's telling and then, and then the, the words that Joseph Smith uh, says that uh, we're talking about young Joseph here, he said, he formulates a sentence that's absolutely way beyond that of a seven-year-old. So, so, so Vogel, Dan Vogel points out the fact that, Hey, this is kind of a little bit um, beyond his, his age range here. So there is probably embellished a little bit. And that's not to say that the, again, the skeletal structure, like basic basics of what's going on, that's probably true. Um, but there's a lot in the story that we have to kind of step back and really examine. We're talking about, again, some of this critical analysis here and saying, does this really make sense? And, and how can we, how can we ask questions of the document, this document being Lucy Mack Smith's autobiography, to query it and say, is this internally consistent or, and is it externally consistent? So just, you know, pay attention to that. But basically, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting and the, the reason that I came across Dr. Moraine's book 
was the fact that Dan Vogel actually references it in Justice Smith, The Making of a Prophet. So that's how I got on to uh, Dr. Moraine. And, uh, and, and then Vogel tends to quote him a lot in, in that part of the history because, again, very interesting insights that the guy has. So we have this, uh, we have this problem. Joseph Smith Jr. has a uh, extremely noxious sore in his leg that is is getting to the point where the traditional method is amputation. That's just really the only thing that they have in their disposal in their toolkit. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out is that some of the preliminary town doctors that were working on on Jr. on Joseph Jr. Uh, were likely what we would uh, know as barber surgeons today, and barber surgeons were a really interesting development in, in medical history where the same guy basically that would cut your hair, that would do your grooming, would also do some basic and, and not so basic medical procedures, uh, surgeries, really. So we're going to include a link to a really interesting resource and encyclopedia of medical history that's going to say a little bit about barber surgeons. So look for that in our show notes and on our website. But basically what we know about Dr. Parkhurst, which was the guy that came to Lance, the, uh, the Lance Joseph Smith's armpit, we know that he says his medical training consisted of, quote, that he had read a little medicine. So that's kind of where we're at with Dr. Parker's. I trust that guy. Yeah, I mean, I've, at the end of the day, you kind of have to. He is the guy. <laughs> so You don't really have another choice, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So where is Joseph Smith in all this young Joseph, what is his perception as a seven-year-old? Put yourself in his shoes and think about what's going on. We've got a month-long illness before it even gets to the point where we're thinking about doing any kind of surgery on his leg. And it's pain that you cannot believe he can't move at a certain point. Lucy contracts typhoid probably, although it's not clear. She just said that she fainted uh, and was unable to maintain caring for Joseph. At that point forward, Hiram takes over as his caretaker. Now, the reason I mention that is because there are some interesting dynamics, again, we're coming back to that word dynamics, that occur when a seven-year-old's mother who's taking care of him and is always taking care of him, and, and a seven-year-old's perception of what a mother is, and then for no explainable reason, his mother just disappears, she's gone, she's not taking care of him anymore, it's a feeling of betrayal, is what Dr. Moraine says. It's something that's probably going to play in for the rest of his life, this time in his, in his youth. And he probably, it's probably never conscious to him, as many traumas are, but that probably just layered in another part of this post-traumatic stress that he's dealing with. I'm going through the worst time of my life, and my caregiver, my mother, my everything to me, is unable to help me. In his perception, there's really no way for a seven-year-old a lot of times to be able to tell the difference between somebody not being able to help you versus somebody just rejecting you. And that's likely how he would have felt. Now, that's not known because we don't have anybody who psychoanalyzed seven-year-old Joseph, but we do know how other young children respond to such traumas, and we know that that's often what's going on in their head. I've been abandoned. You know what I mean? Well, and, and that also probably plays into uh, Joseph and Hiram's relationship even later in life and that's actually yeah you're absolutely right uh it's something i wanted to highlight as well so i'm glad you brought it up you know we have these brothers who are basically inseparable and follow each other throughout the rest of their life and in death and i think that this has a huge part to play in their bond that they bonded so well during this time of of joseph's ultimate need i think that i, I think that's a huge deal now important thing to note is that we have 
three weeks that transpire between this lancing of the of the armpit, the the abscess in the armpit, and when they actually get all the doctors together to to start talking about what they're going to do with his leg. Amputation was likely a huge fear of Joseph. I'm sure during the intervening weeks when he's going through this whole thing, as soon as it starts to settle in his leg, he's, he knows that there's other people that have gone through similar things. He knows that the, the tendency for these doctors, or he's been told probably, is, is to cut the leg off. And I'm, it's possible that his parents would have prepared him for that. And that just really adds, I know that in, in anybody's case, they're probably trying to prepare him for the worse. So that, it, you know, it may be easy a little bit, but this just starts this complex that he, that he ends up getting of amputation, of dismemberment. And that's an important thing to understand is that th- this fear of dismemberment is huge and it's real. And for a seven-year-old, it's especially, it's especially traumatic and poignant. Now, on the subject of amputation... Because we know that they basically, they came pretty close to actually making the decision to amputate the leg. With the involvement of Dr. Nathan Smith, it could have played out a couple of ways. One of the ways it could have played out was that he he may have actually said that that was the best option in order to convince them to be ready for another option when he presented it. The other option would have been to do this very complicated procedure where he's taking out pieces of the bone that are infected, but leaving the leg. And really, we know that uh, at this point, that Dr. Smith is the only one really in the country that's doing this, but that he has experience doing it and he's advocating for it. And he's trying to build, well, he's trying to build evidence to support this new procedure that he's basically developed. So the story that Lucy tells of her bringing everybody together and basically telling them how they can go about, you know, doing this surgery, it's pretty unbelievable because it's not something that was really happening except in the case of Dr. Smith, who was the person who was there in charge. So it's much more likely that he was the one to offer that as an option. One thing I'll add, uh, just many times we're shown pictures or depicted an image of a spy being captured and being tortured. Oftentimes what they will do is, is tell you, this is what I'm going to do to you. You know, I'm going to take a blowtorch and do this and that. And it's like that in and of itself, that psychological trauma is a torture in and of itself. You know, you have this you have this seven year old boy with a tremendous amount of pain in his left leg that is also being threatened with amputation. He's basically being tortured. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So and and. Something that we're going to include in the show notes as well. Um, it's very interesting to look at the instrumentation that these doctors use. So I pulled up a picture and then we're going to include it of a, a, you know, around that time, it would have been 1780 that this uh, particular kit would have come out of. So, but, it, you know, it would have been very similar to the ones they were using at that time because we're talking 1812. So we're not talking that far out. But uh, the amputation kit would have had. Among other things, you know, the saw, which is basically a hacksaw. Uh, So that in and of itself is pretty scary. One thing that I didn't know uh, that I thought was really interesting is that the other main instrument really is basically a gigantic knife. I mean, it looks like a a short sword. It looks like a sword. And some of you may have put this together, but this is going to tie back into the whole sword of Laban. That's the reason that Dr. Moray named his book that. 
this this sword that would have been shown to Joseph Smith, he would have seen it. And it was likely in the same kit that Dr. Smith used when he did his procedure. It's just, I mean, all the fantasies of a child that you think about of, of all these horrible things happening, it, it literally brings that to life. And it's, it's just barbaric. And I say barbaric, I mean, they were doing the best they could. But I, you look at it now and you're like, oh man, that's a, that's a scary thing to see for anybody, let alone a kid. So finally, you know, we get to the point where Dr. Smith, he's decided on the procedure. He's going forward with it. And this is really where the scene actually comes into play. There's a lot that can be relied upon in in the story. The parts that uh, saints use in particular is is to describe what Joseph Smith looked like. Basically, you know, pale, dripping with sweat. Of course, that, that that's that's makes complete sense. I think it's obvious that he didn't take any alcohol, but the reasons why or how he articulated that. That's pretty questionable, so I think we should probably examine that a little bit uh, to ourselves and say, what's the most likely scenario here for a seven-year-old? But in any case, you know, they they begin this uh, procedure. They begin chipping away, and in Joseph's own recollection, which was scant, by the way, and that's something we're going to talk about here in a second, but in his own recollection, he had 14 pieces of bone eventually that were removed. Now, some of these pieces actually seem to work their way to the surface a little bit, so it's not it's not that likely that each of those 14 pieces were they were working their way to the surface of the skin and they were pulling them out that way. Still not very comfortable, I'll say, but it's it's not necessarily going back through the surgery again. Now tell me more about that the scant memory. Yeah. Uh yeah, so interestingly enough, uh again, we get this from Dr. Moraine's book. Joseph Jr. starts to show signs of of what he calls uh sorry, not what he calls, but what the medical community calls traumatic amnesia. And that is where you you remember basic outlines of events that happen, but you can't really recall details. And so for the rest of Joseph's life, when he was asked about this, there's only a couple of instances where he actually shares the story, but he he selectively avoids specific parts of the story, including anything regarding any kind of pain. He glosses right over that, and he only tells sort of a factual, cold reading of the situation. Now, in, interesting thing, in, during the surgery, Dr. Moraine states that Joseph is actually exhibiting specific symptoms of what is, is referred to as dissociation. Uh, and, and this happens in young children that go through traumatic experiences as well. They essentially go into a trance-like state, and it's a way for them to sort of protect themselves. Their mind shelters themselves from whatever pain is happening. A lot of times it's physical pain, but it can be mental pain as well. And uh, this is actually, interestingly enough, we can refer to Stephen King, the, you know, the author, Stephen King, the scary, scary books guy. Yeah, you know, <laughs> scary books guy. You know that guy. Frightening books. And it, right? He wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Cujo. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so have you ever seen the movie um, Stand By Me? You ever seen the movie Stand By Me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Because it's been a long time, but there's the scene in that movie where his friend, Sorry, spoiler alert, everybody. There's a scene where his friend and he are on the train trestle and they almost get hit by a train. But in Stephen King's actual life, when he was really young, and you're going to have to forgive me because I don't remember the actual age, he went out one night with his friend to go play on the railroad tracks. 
and evidently was there, his friend gets killed by a train. And the the way that he's his parents describe it is that he w- he walked home, his eyes kind of glazed over. He was in a he's again in this kind of trance like state, not able to describe what he went through. And for the rest of his life, even to this day, he says he knows what happened based on how people described it to him, but he has no memory of the event itself. So this is a, this is a real psychological phenomenon that happens where people go through this kind of event and it causes them to dissociate. And that's very common in a lot of different mental health uh, situations, but they dissociate to to protect themselves from what's going on. And this is likely what would have happened with Joseph Smith during this situation. In fact, it would have happened to anybody going through this situation, not just him. It's just a common occurrence that happens. And so, and then to to go back to the this traumatic amnesia that he experienced, later on he's unable to really recall specific events to it. Dr. Moraine says, for example, the memories instead tend to burst out at times of stress that are in some way reminiscent of the original event. And, and, and again, Dr. Moraine says that Joseph Smith Jr. demonstrated a range of symptoms all his life that suggested that he had a dissociated memory of at least part of the horrors of his childhood operations hiding an amnesia in his mind. He was aware of having a sore leg. He was aware of having been under the care of doctors. And he was aware that at least one operation had been performed he was aware of his family's concern. He was aware of his exile at the seashore, which, by the way, so he went to go stay with a family member in uh, to Salem, Massachusetts, actually. Can't seem to get away from Salem to uh, to recover. Um, so that's what he's talking about there. So he, he was aware of his exile at the seashore, but it is most doubtful that he retained any conscious memory of that final operation itself. Now, quick question. Um is it accurate to say that uh, dissociation is kind of a precursor to uh, multiple personality disorders or mo- multiple personality disorders are a type of dissociation? So as far as I'm aware, um, multiple personality disorder as such, it's there's a different name for it and I can't recall it right now. Um, but it's, it's a little contentious in the literature. I think that it's been added back into DSM-5, which is the current uh, – diagnostic standards manual that, uh, that psychologists and psychiatrists will use to diagnose, but, Oh, dissociative identity disorder. Yes. Okay. So there you go. So it just looked it up. Yeah, exactly. So in the, and you're confirming it there, right? So, so there is still a lot of, um, to my knowledge, there's still a lot of debate as to whether this is an actual, uh, disease or whether it's manifestations of other types of personality disorders. Right. So what is really interesting though, is that, that, personality disorders tend to have a dissociative element to them, right? So narcissistic personality disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder, uh, you know, these, these personality disorders tend to have an, an accompanying dissociation that happens uh, regularly, meaning they, they tend to frequently separate themselves from reality, whether it's conscious or unconscious, but typically it's unconscious. They just, they just do it automatically. Or psychopathic or sociopathic personality disorder. Uh, sociopaths, psychopaths, those, I think those two terms are used interchangeably. But, um, but sociopaths, uh, they dissociate uh, their emotions from their acts. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it, again, this is just to illustrate some of the dissociative behavior that happens with people. This is not to say that Joseph Smith fits any of those uh, particular diagnoses because it's really hard to diagnose somebody 
it's in history. But, you know, Dr. Moraine actually does a really good job of analyzing Joseph Smith's behavior throughout his life. Uh, because we have so much information that, you know, it's able to kind of pinpoint a lot of common behaviors that he would have had. So I'm I'm yet to find out what Dr. Moraine thinks about how Joseph handled all this stuff. Suffice it to say, he frequently exhibited dissociative behavior, almost trance-like states. He was described by other people as going into a, a type of trance when he would receive revelation. So, and this was actually described by Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner, who's a, a future a plural wife of Joseph, actually, who says, and I quote, at once his countenance changed and he stood mute. There was a searchlight within him over every part of his body. I never saw anything like it on earth. He got so white that anyone who saw him would have thought he was transparent. And that matches the literature almost exactly. For somebody who's who's dissociating, interesting stuff. I think. I mean, there's a lot to digest there. Um, I think that uh, we're going to see a lot of ripples, a, r- a real ripple effect going from here forward in Joseph Smith's life, where we're going to find out that there's there's echoes of this surgery of of this trauma that he went through for the rest of his life. This is just so fascinating. Well, absolutely fascinating. This is why we do it. This is why we do this. Moses is so good. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to go ahead and leave that here for now. Uh, Once again, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of No Man Knows My Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you would like to hear more, please show your support for us by going to your podcast app, whatever that may be, so that you can rate and subscribe to the podcast. Now, the best way that you can compliment us is by telling your friends and family about this podcast. If you find it interesting enough for you and you think of anybody else that might like it, go ahead and share this with them. Absolutely. Tell everybody, you know, um, we, we honestly hope that you really enjoy this and we honestly hope that you'll share it with those people who you think will enjoy it as well, or even those people who may not enjoy it as much, but just anybody, um, we want to get our, we want to get the word out and we want to get people read up on Mormon history. Um, just to reiterate from earlier, uh, we, we will be starting a new segment fairly soon. So we want you to send us your questions because we're going to start a listener Q and a, uh, soon in the future. So please send us your questions about Mormon history, whatever they may be, send them to no man knows my podcast at gmail.com in the subject line. You can put listener Q and a, or you can put question, whatever, just make it easy for us to understand what it is. You can also tweet us at no man knows pod. That's our handle at no man knows pod, or just go on to Reddit, DM us straight at you uh, slash no man knows my podcast. Uh, we really want to have questions from our listeners regarding anything really with Mormon history. But if you can keep it close to the chronology that we're using right now to our timeline, we would appreciate it. But yeah, we, we look forward to hearing from you. And finally, you can find us on our website, no man or through social media with our Facebook page, facebook.com slash no man knows. Our Twitter handle, as I just said, was at no man knows pod. And you can find us on Reddit as well with our username, which is you slash no man knows my podcast. Come visit us on social as well. Any way that you can interact with us, we're looking forward to it. We love hearing from you. We welcome it all. We welcome it all. So in, in our next episode, in episode four, we'll be wrapping up chapter one of Saints. We're going to be covering the move from Vermont to New York. We're going to be covering Palmyra, life in Palmyra, a city of industry. <laughs> we're going to be covering the Second Great Awakening, and in particular, the Burnover District. And we're also going to have everything that leads up to Joseph Smith Jr.'s theophany, his first vision accounts. 
So we look forward to covering some of that. After that, we're going to get into the first vision accounts. That's going to be a lot of material to cover as well. So we look forward to having questions from anybody regarding that. Uh, you know, now we're going forward in the future whenever anybody wants to contribute. But uh, we're, we have a lot of material to cover. Eventually, when we get further into the Saints book, there's going to be less material to cover. It's going to be a lot less dense. Uh, but right now, th- these are really formative events that are happening. And so we really want to take our time going through this so that everybody has a full picture of what's going on and not just gloss over anything. Well, this kind of helps with establishing the latter story. If you take just the, the restoration at face value without understanding things leading up to it, then there's really nothing else to gain from that church history from the restoration onward. Yeah. No, exactly. And, you know, the history is the whole story. It's not just a couple of facts here, there, uh, a very loose timeline. We want the whole story because we need to understand the context, just like you're saying, Moses. The reason why we're going into so much depth and unwrapping so much within that that history and the formative years of Joseph Smith Jr. is because if we go just within the Restoration onward and look at the church history, just look at the specific events or look at the specific parties to the events of the church restoration, you're really looking at things in a vacuum. And you're not really taking into account all the environmental variables that are going into the upbringing of Joseph. And it's really hard to get a complete picture, an accurate picture of what's really going on at that moment. No, absolutely. Yeah. And you're leaving out all the other things that inform what's going on. So, yeah, I I know exactly what you're saying. And I think that that's what really what we're trying to do. So we hope that you appreciate the fact that we're, we're going into so much depth here. You know, we'll reach time periods where it's going to hit a lot. Uh, the, the first vision accounts is, is one major one. Uh, but also, you know, Kirtland era, Nauvoo era, there's a lot to go over in that too. So we're not in a rush and I hope that none of you are. We just want to do this right is basically what I'm trying to say. Okay, so thank you once again for listening to No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. Stay tuned for more exciting discussions.